We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Joe Marchant, author of the new book, The Human Cosmos, A Secret History of the Stars. And she spoke to Helen Chersky, the physicist and oceanographer, all about how the stars have shaped who we are. From primal societies thousands of years ago, drawing paintings and caves, right up to the cutting edge science of how the moon and lunar cycle may be influencing our biology. So it's a really fascinating conversation that I myself felt a little existential after listening to. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Joe's book in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Helen Chersky. I am delighted to introduce our guest today, Jo Marchant. She's an award-winning science journalist and the author of many books, including Decoding the Heavens and the Shadow and the Cure. It's an astonishingly wide range. And her latest book is The Human Cosmos, The Secret History of the Stars, which has just been published. And so we're going to be talking about the themes of that book and some of the examples in there. And I'm genuinely looking forward to this because there is so much in here to discuss Uh, I've got a copy of the book right here. It's got a very beautiful cover. You always judge a book by its cover, right? It's always a good start. But what's inside really lives up to it. And a quick reminder before we get going that if you enjoy today's podcast, don't forget there's a little like button you can like us and subscribe to the intelligence squared channel and if you have strong views on our discussion or even medium views do feel free to share those with us in the comments section below so first of all joe genuinely congratulations on this book it is brilliant and it's so vast in scope there's so much detail in there and also so much clear thinking and i have to start by showing congratulating you i'm showing the people on the video the podcast won't be able to hear this but the contents page is a star chart how cool is that was that your idea it (laughs) was and i never thought they would let me get away with it but they actually did it and i'm so happy because i think it looks great and i like that the fact that it kind of comes around full circle kind of fits a little bit the arc of the book so yeah i do love that i'm glad you showed that yeah fabulous so this this is a book that goes right to the heart of a question that's becoming more and more important for western science i think which is 
how do we connect science and meaning in life? And sometimes it seems like science takes us away from meaning and it's all about numbers and data and measuring things. But I think you, you show us that, that they, they do come together. So let's start at the beginning. You know, this idea of studying the cosmos and studying the humans being seen as two separate things. What made you think that it would be nice to bring those together? It was a few different threads coming together. So I suppose one of them is from my book, Decoding the Heavens, that you mentioned. So I wrote about the Antikythera mechanism in that, this ancient Greek clockwork device that you know, was 2000 years old, made in ancient Greece, and it essentially modelled the cosmos. And that got me really fascinated by this idea that people all through history have looked up at the stars and, and wondered at it and the sort of different stories they told about it, the different ways people had of understanding it and, you know, that sort of thread coming to now and the idea that actually we're losing that view of the stars. So with light pollution, we're kind of the first people ever not really to be able to see that sort of full glory of the heavens, if you like. You know, 80% of us can't see the Milky Way anymore, 80% of people in Europe and the US, that is. So part of it was wanting to explore what that view has meant to people through history and you know, does it matter now that we're losing it? And then that other thread came from my last book, Cure, which was, it might sound unrelated initially, but it was looking at the role of the mind in physical health. So it got me very interested in the relationship between mind and body, and also how science can get at that, that some, you know, science is all about what questions you're asking. And, and sometimes, in medicine, in Western medicine, we've ended up tr treating sort of people as physical bodies rather than taking into account sort of the whole person. And so that got me interested in, well, how can we get at experience and meaning and, and belief and hope and all of these things and how they impact on our health? So it was bringing that approach as well to the cosmos. How do we make sense of reality? And we've got this, you know, we've built this wonderful scientific understanding of the universe, which is you know, beautiful and, and elegant. And we can see, you know, further than our our senses ever could with, you know, the telescopes that we have and all these amazing things that are going on in the cosmos. But I also wondered if maybe we've lost something in terms of that, the, the meaning and, and the stories and the importance of our experience, I suppose, of the stars. Well, it's, it's very striking, isn't it? So I, I don't know about you, you know, so I studied physics and, you know, we learn about the stars and you, you do lessons and you learn, even in school, you learn what the Milky Way is. And I remember being out in a desert somewhere when I was perhaps 20 years old and going outside at night and going, oh, that's what they were talking about. And I have been writing about it. I've been answering questions on it all my life. No one ever showed me. Did you have a similar, do you remember discovering the cosmos for yourself like that? Yeah, I mean, I've had a, a few times in my life where I've been places where you get that chance. But there was just one particular episode that I mentioned in the book when I was in the mountains of Mexico on a completely different assignment. And it was a very sort of, very stressful and, and slightly dangerous journey, should we say, to get there. And then this huge rainstorm when we arrived, there was a power cut. I was in this tiny little one-person tent thinking I was going to get washed away and then woke up in the middle of the night when the rain had stopped and came outside and looked up. And it was just that wow feeling, that total awe, because we forget, you know, you, you go to the countryside maybe and you look up and you see the stars that we can't see in London and you're like, oh, look, kids, there's the stars. But it's not the same as when you just see that full kind of dome above you. I just couldn't believe, you know, there wasn't any dark. It was just all silver. It was just all of those stars. And 
that feeling we get when we look at the stars that we it's so rare now and part of what I'm also looking at in the book is what does that do to us you know how does that view change us and you talk about in a way the book is about it, it acknowledges that perhaps the great achievement of science in some way has been taking us out of the universe but actually, by the end, um, you, you sort of, I've, I found myself questioning whether that was an achievement or not <laughs> and whether we need to retrace our steps a bit. How, how do you see that balance between like this idea? We'll come on to some of these ideas, but taking ourselves out of it. Was that was that the right thing to do? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That And I wasn't I didn't plan this when I started writing the book. But what came out of it as I sort of was tracing that story from the Paleolithic times and cave paintings, through the sort of birth of science and the understanding we have now like at every step of the way you could see our own experience being taken out and we're sort of abstracting our understanding of of time and and space and you know we've built this sort of yeah physical understanding of the universe as sort of made up of like particles and forces that follow mathematical rules and that is an incredible achievement we understand so much because we've done that we have this objective framework that we can agree on and build on. And that's a really wonderful thing. But we've kind of forgotten about the other half of the picture. It seems to me, at least, I don't think all scientists would agree with that. But I was left feeling that the meaning we find in the stars, the way we feel when we experience the stars and the way that it it makes us feel connected and pushes us to a sort of more bigger picture understanding of this cosmos that we're part of we're so sort of focused down in our modern lives now onto onto screens and our sort of daily existence that I think that is a perspective that is also important that previous societies have kind of prized that kind of that view of things and it's it's something that yeah something that I think we've forgotten so I think it's it is a wonderful achievement, but I think we also need to pay attention to the, the things that we've sort of thrown out along the way. Well, let's let's go back to the beginning and, and start with what we've thrown out. So the book starts with some of the most famous uh, cave paintings in the world in Lascaux. And so could you sort of set the scene for us before, you know, the modern world mucked all this up? The people who made those cave paintings, what do we know about the way they saw the sky and what was their relationship with it? I should say, first of all, it's really difficult to say anything for sure about what people of the Paleolithic 20,000 years ago were thinking and believing when they made cave paintings. But what we can do is look at lots of different lines of evidence and see kind of where they're converging, what kind of picture is that building. So I was really interested as a starting point in Lascaux Cave, which has got these, you know, incredible paintings of animals, sort of oryx bulls, stags, horses covering its walls. And there's one in particular, the the biggest oryx bull in the cave called Bull Number 18. And it has these six dots in a sort of curious pattern, a line of four and a line of two just above its shoulder. And that same pattern of dots appears in lots of other art sort of around the the planet and through history from sort of Native um, um, American people to Siberia to a very similar pattern is in the logo of the Japanese car manufacturer Subaru and they all represent the star cluster the Pleiades and the the one in Lascaux is so similar and what kind of really makes it interesting is that it's above the shoulder of this bull and the Pleiades star cluster is in our modern constellation Taurus just at the bull's shoulder and in the cave painting it's also got a very prominent eye you know you can put the bull next to a drawing of of, of Taurus and you've got the, the sort of the horns that are defined by stars you've got the prominent eye which is the star Aldebaran you've got the sort of speckles on the face for the Hyades so 
it's led to this idea, you know, is this a star map? Were the people of the Paleolithic, you know, basically painting the stars when they were painting these animals? And there's some really interesting research looking at analysis of myths where you can take a myth where there's different versions of the story appear all around the planet. One example is the cosmic hunt where an animal is is hunted and goes up into the sky and turns into a constellation. And you find versions of that in ancient Greek myths in America, in Africa. And researchers have made these almost like a phylogenetic family tree of these different myths of what components are sort of present or missing in the different myths and concluded that that story actually goes back to northern Eurasia in Paleolithic times. So that's a piece of evidence telling us that actually it's plausible that stories about the stars could have survived that long. So just to be clear here that the brilliant idea behind this is that just you know mistakes or changes creep into stories and so just like you can with genetics you can kind of say oh this one's very similar to that one and then it branched off a bit and became a slightly different story and you can actually draw trees of this which is such a brilliant idea exactly so they evolve over time and different people i mean sometimes it might be just mistakes and misrememberings it's also that different people were you know, the, the star would change depending on which constellation was important to that those people in that, you know, that was visible in that part of the world, or the animal would change, whether it's a, a, a bear or an elk, um, depending on which animals were important. So it's, yeah, so they're changing over time. And so they divided the myths up into little sort of components, you know, what was the animal? Was it one hunter or many, you know, and basically encoded that into a sequence of ones and zeros, depending on the presence or absence of these different myth components, essentially, and then ran the phylogenetic software just as you would for DNA to come up with the family tree. So it's a really fascinating approach. So that's kind of some additional circumstantial evidence that you like, that there were stories being told about the stars that, and they can sort of survive in some, in some form until now. There's also work looking at hunter-gatherer communities, sort of recent and traditional communities now. How do they live? What do the stars mean to them? And the Pleiades are actually important to traditional communities all around the the planet. The rising and setting of the Pleiades is used in a lot of traditional calendars. And it's often tied in with events in the natural world that are important to people. In Native America, it's very much linked to the life cycle of the bison, for example. So when the Pleiades set, it's time to hunt. So we're seeing that link between the bison and the cycle of the Pleiades. And so there's an idea that actually the Pleiades would have defined the mating season of the oryx bull. So it could have been that there's a link made between, you know, what's happening in the sky and what's happening with the oryx on the ground. And so by... I won't go through all of the all of the different lines of evidence now, but you can put that together to, and I think it, for me, I I feel that it is actually quite plausible that this could be a representation of the Pleiades in the sky, and what it does all add up to is a very holistic view of the cosmos. So events in the sky and events on Earth were seen as completely entwined. You know, one was was causing the other. There wasn't any particular distinction, yeah, either between Earth and sky, between people and and nature. It it was between you know, objective and subjective reality. It was just one kind of holistic experience, if you like. So I think that's the best guess we can come up with as to what kind of universe... So so the idea here is that they they live in a world of stories, basically, as we know tends to happen with Indigenous communities. That's how they keep track of what they're supposed to do and what their traditions are and how they value ancestors. And the stories are written in the sky as well as in the objects on Earth. Yes, Basically, yeah. So there's so when the the cave paintings, for example, 
they're they're painting animals, but they're not just painting animals. They're painting the the sort of the, the creatures in the stars, if you like, and it's all in, entwined. Yeah. Well, let's move on a little bit in history now. One of one of the things that keeps coming up in this book is is this. It's perhaps a, an arrogant trap that Western scientists have kept falling into, which is to assume that people in the past didn't observe very much. They didn't have measurement methods. They didn't sort of, you know, they just went around hunting. And and, it, and then they get, these, these patterns come up where clearly they could observe and measure very well. And one of the examples of this, but they used it for a different purpose. They didn't use it to write science books. And just could you say a little bit about the examples with the burial mounds? Because clearly there's some very accurate observation going on here, but they're using it to, to deal with what they do with the dead. Yeah, so this is moving on to the Neolithic now. So when we've got the birth of agriculture and people are starting to build with stone. So this is passage tombs in Ireland, stone circles like Stonehenge. And you've got a lot of these monuments are showing alignments with the sun. So there are small stone tombs all across Europe, which are aligned to sunrise, probably on the day that they were built. But then you've also got these much more sort of spectacular examples. So you've got Newgrange tomb in Ireland, where it's at the sunrise on winter solstice, there's a little sort of window above the door. And so a beam of light just comes straight through and strikes the floor right at the heart of the tomb. And then Stonehenge is very famous. And you have the parties at, at the sort of midsummer, but actually it was probably sunset on the winter solstice that was more important. And so it was, at this time, it seems that that moment of the winter solstice, when the, the sort of the sun is receding, and then at the solstice, it, it sort of pauses, and then the days kind of come back to getting longer again. So it's kind of that journey into darkness and then coming back into light towards the summer that was a really crucial moment and something that they clearly were trying to capture in these monuments that these sort of these beams of, of light sort of framed in stone and went to huge efforts to sort of align these these monuments accurately it was clearly really important to them and it seems to be very much tied up with the, the fate of souls after death and so there's an idea that you know that the, the the rays of light would sort of shine into the tomb and then perhaps would be imagined to come back up through the tomb and sort of carrying the souls of the dead back up into the sky. So yeah, a very, you know, great attention to detail and understanding of what was happening. But as you say, a completely different sort of idea of what the the use and the meaning of, of that was. And it did have very practical, like I, um, I paddle outrigger canoes and so I'm connected to the Polynesian voyaging community. And of course, they had this this great renaissance in their knowledge of how that it was possible for Polynesians to navigate across the enormous distances of the Pacific and not just to do it by accident or once in a while, but for it to be a systematic thing. Um, and, and there's this lovely story in the book where, you know, and it is, it's one of the great meetings of minds, I think, in history where Captain Cook meets Tupaya, who is the Polynesian navigator. So tell us a little bit about the relationship between those two. Yeah, no, I love this story because it really is like two worldviews colliding. So Cook, it's, it's his first mission to the Pacific and he goes to Tahiti and his mission is to observe the transit of Venus across the sun. And there are, are teams being sent out by different nations all around the globe to observe this. This is a matter of great national security because by doing this, you can work out through the method of parallax how far it is to Venus and thus work out the size of the solar system, which they needed 
for accurate celestial navigation to work out longitude. And this was really important for the European powers that were trying to sort of explore and and colonise and and dominate the the planet. And so that worldview is all about making accurate observations, developing better measuring instruments, translating that onto charts, like, you know, complicated mathematical calculations to work out where they were. Um, And then Captain Cook meets Tupaya, who was a priest and a skilled celestial navigator and ended up inviting him to come on and sail on the endeavour with him. And unfortunately, Tupaya didn't survive the trip back to England. Um, But there are stories of how the crew were impressed by how well he could navigate. Um, He could always point in the direction of, of home, apparently. He told the crew about, and including Captain Cook, about lots of different islands that were really distant and he drew a chart um, showing where some of these islands were that is still um, in the British Library and that's been really interesting through history the sort of attitudes to that because initially there was this sort of excitement of wow look what the Polynesians could do and they you know they didn't have any of these instruments or, or charts it was all done just through their their senses and you know observing star compasses memorizing star paths and combining that with observations of the weather of wildlife so very sort of subjective holistic approach and then in the in the west there was it everything was very sort of skeptical there was this idea that this you know these islands didn't really seem to kind of match where they were supposed to be and clearly the whole thing was just you know didn't really mean very much um but more recently there's been a realization that you know Tupaya wasn't drawing a map in the same way that we would think about it you know we have i you know this sort of mathematical idea of 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 maps we measure longitude and latitude and we mark the sort of objective position of a location on the map and then when we're following the map we imagine ourselves as as moving across that mathematical space if you like and the realization was that for Tupaya he wouldn't have thought about it that way what in fact what he had drawn was a mosaic of different bearings or sailing directions with several different centers so you had to mentally place yourself on a particular island and then his chart was showing the sailing direction from that island to get to the neighboring islands and then you'd have to put yourself on the next island to interpret the bearings for the next set of islands and when researchers kind of analyzed it in that way they found that actually it correlated with very distant islands and that he had known about places that were sort of hundreds of, of miles away so it's just this nice I, demonstration I think of how we can sort of be quite you know think that our sort of scientific sort of mathematical approach is is, is superior and and sometimes not appreciate what other approaches can achieve and actually when you put yourself into Pia's shoes and see the world in the way that he was seeing it, you start to realise what, you know, that they could also, you know, achieve these incredible feats of navigation. And it sounds, you know, your description, and this is generally thought about to Pia, that he was interested in the Western world. He was like, oh, these people are doing interesting things. How do I, that's why he wanted to come along to sort of find out. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Like he, yeah, he made himself part of that group, if you like. You know, the, here were these people that had turned up on this big ship and started building a, a camp and they had all these instruments and he was just hanging around because he, asking questions, he wanted to know what they were doing. And it, I'm not sure that Cook and Joseph Banks, who was travelling with him, were, were quite as interested in return. I wish they had have been and then we would know more about, you know, Tupai's view of the world. Well, you touched there on something very important, which is that as as you go through the book, this, there's this kind of feeling that builds where you sort of list 
the ways in which humans take themselves out of the universe, that there's there's maps and then we take ourselves out of maps. And as you described, there's a grid and there's time and then there's clocks and we kind of take ourselves away from the clocks. And there's this progression of, and it sounds, you know, it's clearly no one planned this, but it, it's almost a systematic scrubbing out of humans from all these different aspects but tell us just a little bit about the clocks because that because obviously you know the sun rises that's where we get days from but there's some quite interesting things to do with the clocks and and how we got rid of ourselves from the time yeah I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to the invention of clocks I think from, from the antikythera mechanism I just find just that invention of clockwork just so fascinating but yeah so you know initially you know time was defined by the cosmos by the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars that we see above us you know there wasn't anything else you know the sun's moving and that is the day and the night and the 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 seasons and when you start to have clocks so and this was initially a big part of the motivation for this was sort of medieval monks who wanted to be able to time their prayers more accurately so there was a spiritual motivation behind this and up until that point all ways of measuring time had been done with continuous flow. So whether that's falling sand or a water clock or a candle burning, and that kind of is intuitive, that makes sense, right? And it wasn't until the invention of a little piece of the mechanism called the an escapement, which sort of rocks backwards and forwards. So they were in, experimenting with falling weights, but it's really hard to get that to do it at a constant speed. But then when you regulate that into chunks with this little piece of mechanism that rocks backwards and forwards, that keeps the speed constant. But what you've also done is you've you've chopped up that flow into these sort of regular sort of seconds or, or, or ticks of, of the clock. So now you've got like a digital rather than an analogue approach to time. You know, you've made it mathematical. You're sort of counting those seconds. So I love that it did start with the ticking of the clock. I mean, that, that moment is actually really important. Yeah, well, it actually started with the ringing of a bell because the theory is that this was the mecha- it's the same mechanism that they used. So initially they had the water clock that would ring a bell to wake them up to then go and pray. And it's that same sort of hammer mechanism that was then adapted. Somebody thought, oh, we could use this to sort of regulate the falling of the chain. So the ringing of the bell became the ticking of the clock. And that was the moment that sort of time became, time was taken out of the universe, if you like. And initially the clocks weren't very accurate and they had to be corrected to match the position of the sun in the sky. But as clocks became more accurate, they became more accurate than the sun because the sun's speed varies as, as we see it in the sky. And so then the clocks are more accurate and it's the sundials that need correcting to match the clocks. And so that was the kind of tipping point. The universe is wrong, basically. The solar system is yeah, wrong. the universe is wrong. Time is no longer our experience of the sky or what we experience around us. It is held in these, these machines essentially. And that's been an incredibly powerful approach. You know, we can now, I mean, I couldn't even say the fraction, <laughs> I don't think I could remember it. You know, the, the accuracy of, of, of clocks now that are based on sort of vibrations of the cesium atom, it's just mind-boggling. It's frightening, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, and that's underlying so many aspects of our lives and our technology now, you know, our communications. So, yeah, it's just another example, of, yeah, a little bit like the maps of where we used to see time as we did with space, as a property of the universe that we experience. And now it's a sort of, it's a mathematical abstract thing that we calculate, which is very, very useful, but you've left something behind. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv one of my favorite chapters in the book actually although that's a hard hard battle to win was the point where you started talking about in spite of all this modernization of us taking ourselves out of the universe there were ideas from the cosmos that came back down to earth and and you frame this uh, you discuss the american revolution and this idea that you need a balance of forces and that that idea that sort of like the scientific idea, you know, Newton and orbits and things was so strong that it actually started to invade political discourse. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I love this too, because the the way in which we see the universe, the, you know, the way we think the cosmos works has always defined how we live on Earth, political structures and elites on Earth. And, you know, you look to ancient civilizations, whether it's the Romans, the Mayans, the Babylonians, the Chinese, it's rulers are taking their authority from the heavens they're modeling themselves on sort of divine celestial beings and it's it's very hard to to question authority if it's being drawn from well this is how the universe works but we kind of think that well that's not really where we are now you know we have a much more rational approach to things but but actually you can see how as ideas about the universe change that fed through into political structures so initially you've got Copernicus putting the sun at the centre of the solar system with the planets orbiting around and immediately kings in Europe started modelling themselves on the sun and this idea that they were the radiant sun with their sort of subjects orbiting around them and then Newton sort of revolutionised physics with this idea that you know, you have these sort of physical mathematical laws that define the motion of everything in the universe from a particle to a planet so, you know, Celestial bodies aren't these sort of 
divine beings that can kind of do whatever they like they've got to obey the same rules and so that led to the idea well if that's true for the universe shouldn't the same laws also apply to people from commoners to kings and those ideas were really influential during the enlightenment and the revolutionaries that were kind of behind the american revolution the the french revolution and you can see that at the time with the, the imagery that people were using in their language, there was a lot of astronomical and mechanical imagery and, and people were very concerned about balance of power and this idea uh, between centrifugal and centripetal forces that you, you didn't want sort of too much sort of gravitational pull, like pulling everything into the central sun. But then you didn't want, if if the ties were too loose, you know, everything would hurtle away into anarchy and people were really interested in, you know, how could you design governments to have that right balance of forces and this you know these newtonian principles that they they absolutely weren't the only you know there were lots of other factors that were going on as well but it is a very strong one that i think often isn't recognized and and what i found the most interesting was in the american revolution so they had very much been seen as a you know a colony a planet orbiting sort of english king and government and then once they formed their sort of new democracy of the united states they, they needed a new cosmic metaphor, if you like. There couldn't be a planet orbiting anymore. So they came up with this idea of a constellation of equal stars, which I think is lovely. And so there you have the stars on the flag. That's why they represented the states as stars. So that, you know, th- those Newtonian ideals, that idea about this is how the universe works. It's a mechanical system that, you know, is balanced and follows these these laws, these predictable sort of explainable laws, you know, that's at the heart of the democracies that we live in now. So we're we're just as much a, a cosmic state, if you like. It struck me that there's a there's a sort of hidden thing behind there, which is that that's some very good science communication. I mean, if you you know, when when a scientific idea percolates discourse in that way, whether or not it's accurate, you know, something like the Higgs boson coming along or CERN discovering something. If it if it goes that far, someone really did well with talking about how the universe worked. And that's interesting all by itself, I think. Yeah, I think some ideas are just so powerful and it must have to do with the, t- the time being right as well. But if you look about, at, you know, ideas of evolution as well, you know, there are just certain scientific ideas that are so powerful that they do end up informing and, and you know, shaping so many other aspects of, of society, which, you know, is a really good thing in one way you know people are being inspired by these scientific ideas but you know they're only metaphors there are so many different ways of of seeing the world so it also is sort of closing you off at the same time to other ways of of seeing the world too but yeah no, i agree it's it's fascinating how much that one has taken hold well let's move on to so one of the other turning points in your book that i'd never thought about really is is the idea of the difference between stars being unknowable and suddenly being able to know something about what they're made of or what's inside of them. And this is obviously very topical at the moment because someone's just pointed some telescopes at Venus and has discovered some phosphine gas that everyone's very excited about. But spectroscopy, which came along very early, tell us a little bit about the perspective shift that that generated. Yeah, so after the American and French revolutions, there was this really sort of positivist view that you know science and reason were going to be the way that we were going to understand everything and August Comte was one of the sort of people really driving this and he wrote a lot about knowledge where knowledge could come from um, and he thought it had to come from these scientific methods and he wrote in great detail what knowledge was sort of possible or acceptable and what knowledge wasn't and one of the things he said we could never know was the chemical composition of stars because they were so distant 
you know, he said we can under, we, we can look at their emotion and, and their behaviour, but we'll never know what they're actually made of. And it was literally a matter of, of a few years before before chemists and physicists proved him wrong. And this was through spectroscopy. So the idea of splitting the light that comes from stars into a spectrum so that you can look at the different frequencies. So rather than just seeing that, you know, one star might look a bit reddish and one star might look a bit bluish, you've got all the bands of light in the spectrum. And the discovery that actually certain frequencies or wavelengths of light are missing from that spectrum. Um, And these patterns correlating with different elements. So you can decode the messages hidden in the light, if you like, to, to work out what different elements are are present in stars or you know any object that's emitting light to us and that was the the change that you know we don't have to have a physical bit of that stuff on earth to work out what it is we can use the light and these stars it turned out were made up of exactly the same elements that are on earth and that was the beginning of astrophysics really so Newton kind of showed that these, you know, what had previously been thought of as these sort of divine celestial beings were obeying physical laws of motion. And now we know that they're also sort of obeying sort of chemistry and they're they're made of the same things as on Earth. So, yeah, that for me, that was probably, you know, just as much of a a revolution as as Newton's ideas. Well, you can sort of hear, you know, as you think about these ideas through history, you can kind of hear the the grumbling in the background of not just the astrologers, but people who think these scientists are just taking all the fun out of everything, that they're they're measuring everything, they're going to make it boring, that we can't have creative ideas anymore. And, And there's a chapter in your book about art which might be surprising to people who are used to reading science books but it's a great thing and it it starts with a play called victory over the sun which is either you know supreme arrogance or supreme protest so the artists were not entirely happy about the scientists going around measuring everything were they yeah so there was kind of a backlash against this positivist view that you know knowledge is all out there waiting to be discovered and we just have to use our sort of our, our intellect and our reason and we will discover it and that will be the end you know we'll know everything and this is the the beginning of the 20th century 1913 victory over the sun it's described as the world's first cubo futurist opera and one of the people behind it was an artist called Kazimir Malevich so this is in in Russia and he's famous for a painting called the black square which was literally just a black square but where he started was with victory over the sun and it really was a sort of a cry out against reason and it sort of seems hard to think, well, what's wrong with reason, right? You know, it's, it's very reasonable. But that they really felt that it, it was kind of leading us, first of all, to a view that there is only physical reality out there. And also that logic kind of forces your thinking in very specific ways. You know, you can only go down the sort of logical, mathematical route. And that, you know, human creativity is capable of, of so much more than that. So it was so the sun was like the symbol of reason, if you like. So this whole thing was they were trying to stop logical thought. So the whole thing made absolutely no sense. So there was like clashing tones on this chords on this old piano and there was these crazy costumes and it was this weird sort of dialect where the, the words didn't make any sense and there was like just I'm trying to remember now because an aeroplane crashed into the stage and there's talking about a fish pond of of Turkish or thankful carp or I can't remember all of the details now, but it basically was just this crazy thing that just left everybody just going, 
what was that? Which was the point, because it was trying to stop that logical thought and to see what else was behind it, if that makes sense. And so he spent his whole career really investigating the nature of reality, the nature of cosmos, the, the cosmos. But he rejected the idea that it is purely this mathematical framework that the scientists had built up, but that there was far more to it than that and that our experience is, is, is key as well. He talked about sort of the cosmos inside the human skull. And how has that battle gone over time? Because, I mean, we hear it now, you know, there's, there's famous Feynman quotes about the beauty of a flower and someone, you know, an artist said to him, oh, you scientist, you're taking out the fun out of it. It seems that this has never gone away. Has, has the battle sometimes gone, gone more one way than the other? Or, or pretty much has, has science been just taking over gradually more as time goes on? I mean, that's a really complicated question. There's definitely been... The pendulum has swung in different directions and you also have different perspectives in different cultures as well. And in the book, I've very much tried to follow the sort of Western scientific worldview because that pretty much dominates now. So I was interested in how have we got to where we are now. But, you know, there are Eastern perspectives, for example, that would be different. I think after the after the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, you had this very kind of gung-ho positivist outlook and then there was kind of a religious sort of backlash and a romantic backlash of you know expressionism and uh, you know our emotional response to things being important and then in the beginning of the 20th century as well there was it was actually scientific discoveries so there were things like the discovery of radioactivity or realising that atoms were actually made of even smaller particles or radio transmissions, for example, the idea that you could send invisible messages through the air. So there were lots of discoveries that came at the beginning of the 20th century or around the turn of the century that were questioning this idea of a solid reality out there. And that's what a lot of artists were responding to. And then you had the sort of birth of quantum physics as well, and all the uncertainty that that brought in about, you know, is there an objective reality out there? So there was a moment up until the sort of 1920s where people were questioning sort of the nature of, of reality and whether you can trust what we perceive, if you like, and, and even, you know, the role that our, our own consciousness might play in that. But since once you get up to the sort of Second World War and after that, I think it's really swung back the other way. And we've gone back much more to a, at least in the sort of, obviously not everyone agrees, you know, you've got lots of different worldviews, but at least that sort of dominant scientific view is ultimately our scientific approach of, of measuring and observing will explain everything. And there are lots of people like Daniel Dennett, Sean Carroll, Brian Green, who would say that we might not understand even consciousness yet, but ultimately it will be explainable, reducible to... In principle, it could be understood. Yeah, through, through you know, uh, we can use the, the maths and the physics and the equations and we will be able to break it down and, and understand it. And it's, I think, just recently in the last few years that there is increasing sort of questions that people aren't 100% happy with that and maybe with science we need to be a bit more open-minded about how we approach that and that we might need new approaches and new attitudes so there you know panpsychism is becoming more popular this idea that actually consciousness isn't either something that doesn't actually exist so we don't need to explain it which is one view or that it just sort of popped into existence when you know humans evolved but that actually it's a fundamental part of physical matter that it was everywhere after all, not sort of maybe thinking brains, but some form of rudimentary awareness. There's also schools of thought in, in quantum physics that actually sort of 
time and, and the universe isn't quite what we thought. You know, it, that it's a bit naive to think about a big bang that happened and then billions of years passing and then life evolving and then we evolved and then we become conscious. But that actually John Wheeler, for example, physicist John Wheeler describes the universe as a participatory universe rather than one big bang. Billions of tiny flashes of creation that sort of coming into the universe coming into being as we, as we look. So there are all these different perspectives that reality could be sort of different to what we thought of this just there's this physical reality out there and, and we're just kind of observers of it and that our experience isn't really part of that reality and I think that's a really good thing like I think we should be questioning this and, and thinking about where we, we fit you know we're not just you know in science we have this method where you pretend that the observer doesn't exist really you know you're just sort of some I don't know some floating thing measuring physical reality and that's a really useful approach for understanding that reality but ultimately we've got to work out how to put ourselves back in. Uh, well it seems it might be that the science itself is helping along that route so towards the end of the book you talk about you know there may be ways in which animals and maybe humans are influenced by the rest of the cosmos in ways that no one was expecting perhaps a few years ago and this comes onto chronobiology and the study of how how organisms keep time ticking along inside themselves and there's one obviously i'm an ocean person so i'm gonna i'm gonna pick the ocean example but you know one of the, the biggest migration on earth is that zooplankton tiny little creatures come up to the surface and go back down on a daily cycle and you describe evidence from the arctic ocean where clearly it's dark for six months at a time and the zooplankton still rise and fall but they don't do it on a daily cycle do they tell us about that yeah, so they switch and they start to follow the lunar day. So they rise and fall every, not every 24 hours, but every 24.8 hours with the moon. And, and there's actually a variation in the strength of it as well with the phase of the moon. So you see the maximum at full moon. And, you know, I, I just love that because that's this, you know, this huge movement, this entire ecosystem. And when the sun goes down, everything starts to follow the moon. And we're, we're seeing effects of the moon in aquatic species, which perhaps isn't so surprising because, you know, you've got the influence of the tide. You've got animals with external fertilization, such as corals. They're using the phase of the moon to time sort of their spawning to a very tight window. So you get these dramatic mass spawnings. And so they're using the sun and the moon together in a really clever way to give you these very specific sort of moments in time. But even on land as well, from the hatching of whippoorwill chicks to the flowering of the Peruvian apple cactus, the conception in Serengeti wildebeest, in all different niches of life that the moon is, is turning out to be important. And in particular, it seems to be that animals are using it when different, either in, in different individuals of the same species or different species need to coordinate activities in time. And so the, that those monthly phases of the moon are actually giving a very useful time cue for, for species to be able to coordinate. But one of the things that, that, that was most interesting in all of that was because we think of cycles of the moon and werewolves and when the full moon comes out, then you know that it's the full moon. But actually some of the examples you talk about they happen without the influence of light, which is a really interesting idea, perhaps contentious. I don't know. How how advanced is the science on that? So that is, is really early days. It's kind of at this sort of, oh, this is really intriguing, but people are taking it seriously. So yeah, so a lot of the effects I, I mentioned are probably to do with varying levels of moonlight or, you know, in the ocean, you've got water currents from the tides that are then, you know, caused by the moon. But there was a really interesting study a couple of years ago in patients with bipolar disorder. 
And so they have these sudden switches in mood that are known to be triggered by changing patterns of sleep. And so these patients tracked the timing of their mood switches and their sleep waking patterns over years. And what came out was that those sleeping patterns were being driven by lunar cycles. So and the interesting thing is it was nothing to do with the phase of the moon. So light couldn't have anything to do with it. It was the tidal cycles, the position of the moon. So that's hinting at either gravitational effects or perhaps effects on the Earth's magnetic fields, because the position of the sun and the moon can also create these sort of daily ripples in the magnetic field. And so the, the mechanism isn't known, but there is quite a lot of work showing that, you know, there's a whole, you know, lots of different species are sensitive to very tiny changes in the Earth's magnetic field. They use it for navigation. So everything from butterflies to turtles and hints, some hints at least, that humans do have a magnetic sense. But the fascinating thing about that is that the implication of that research is that it's actually coming from insiders. It's not an external cue. I mean, it comes from something external, but if either of those mechanisms are borne out, that's, that's, right inside who we are built into us we're connected to the moon yeah so it's an interplay so with the effects of this the sun on our clocks and the moon it's an interplay between these molecular clocks in our cells that are encoded in our dna interacting with those external cues from the sun and the moon and so when you think about it you know any clock has to work in that way you need a mechanism but then you need something to set it so that it's running in time with with your environment and so that a lot of the research focus has been on the sun because that's more obvious and you know a lot of the mechanisms have been worked out but researchers are now starting to see with a kind of new generation of molecular studies looking particularly at aquatic species that there are hundreds of genes also that vary with lunar phases. So it's really the combination of the sun and the moon that's that's being tracked. And and I think I was just going to say that the, the work on magnetism, so th- there's always been this view almost of us, of, of animals as these isolated machines, if you like, sort of a little, like we were talking about, a little bit separate from our environments. But especially with the work on magnetism, it's sort of hinting at a slightly different view of this kind of electromagnetic cosmos that we're in sort of constant touch with and possibly able to sort of perceive these very subtle cues that we're not even conscious of. So I think it's really interesting how it changes our perception of our relationship with with the wider cosmos. Well, at the end of your book, you use a phrase that I had never heard before, but I think it's terrifying. And you talk about awe deprivation, the idea that you know, the smartphones and computers, and they're kind of here, we can see one, and it might be very interesting what's on it, but it's fundamentally, it's this big, and it's here. And we're losing this idea of awe. And that, that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Yes, I I, know, it's, it's really, yeah, it's gutting to think about that. So this is research on, on the emotion of awe, which is quite new, probably the last decade or so. And psychologists define awe as the emotion we feel when we're confronted with something vast, so vast that it it dwarfs us and that we sort of struggle to comprehend it. So it's that kind of thing we talked about at the beginning that stops your thought. And the vastness can be sort of physically large or it can be sort of conceptually vast. But the idea is it kind of blocks that rational thought and you're just left with that wow kind of feeling. And this is something that astronauts report when they've you know been on spacewalks and looked down on Earth. But also stargazing, when we look up at the stars, that's something that we feel. And one of the most common ways that psychologists use to trigger awe in studies is to show people the stars. And it's showing that when we feel awe, people become more curious and more creative. So they're, and they're more sort of interested in what's going on around them. They pay better attention. So memories improve. They're um, happier and less stressed even weeks later. 
But what I think is really interesting is that it actually makes us nicer people. So after experiencing awe, people, they make more ethical decisions. They're more likely to sacrifice, make sacrifices to help others. They care less about money, more about the planet. They feel as if they have more time. And also, interestingly, they sign their names smaller and estimate their own physical size is smaller. And, and neuroscience studies have shown that activity in the default mode network in the brain, which is associated with our sense of self, is reduced. So it's led to this idea of awe-inducing a small self. So it's shifting our perspective away from our ourselves, where we see you know, our own self and our own concerns as all-important and kind of everything, and, and forcing your perspective to something much bigger and so people feel more connected to other people to the planet to, to bigger things and I think that that's really important so the, the researchers have warned of this awe deprivation in modern society where we're all sort of focused down on our screens and said that they think this could be something that's making us more selfish more materialistic more narcissistic and so there's this idea of this kind of dial of, of different states of awareness if you like where you have sort of logical rational thought at one end which is very efficient helps us to engage with details and the, and the physical world but it's also quite narrow it's, it's limiting in some senses you know you have to filter out a lot of the noise to be able to focus down and then or what or is giving us is that big picture perspective so not the sort of logical thought but just seeing that seeing the whole picture feeling our connection to something and and I think if we're you know going to solve a lot of the problems that we're facing at the moment you know the climate crisis for example we clearly we need the science you know we've got to understand what the situation is we've got to come up with solutions but I think we're also going to need that that awe that that connection that gives us sort of the motivation to shift out of our own sort of daily lives and realize how we're affecting the bigger picture so the fact that we're losing the stars and also losing our connection to nature more generally. You know, you can get awe from all different kinds of nature is, is really worrying. And I think it is partly comes from the fact that we have consistently downgraded personal experience as an important source of information and knowledge about the world. So, yeah, so perhaps it's not surprising that we don't value the stars. You know, they're, they're literally our view of the cosmos we're part of is literally being wiped away. And nobody, you know, there's a few dark sky campaigns but mostly people aren't that worried and I, I mean I think it's huge we need that connection with the stars. So just finally I mean if that isn't an argument for uh, re-examining the way we run our society I don't know what it is but just finally if has writing this book changed your relationship with the cosmos and if we all need more awe in our lives what are your recommendations for how we manage it? It has actually I wasn't expecting it to but it has really made me question that view of ourselves as these sort of passively observing this physical reality that's out there where you know what's in your mind your thoughts are kind of imaginary you know they don't exist and but what really exists is the sort of the particles and forces out there and it's made me my view of reality now is much more that reality is in your experience of every moment and we can use the science and the mathematical frameworks and the equations to predict you know with exquisite precision precision how the physical world is going to behave but those are it's it's a mathematical model it's not reality so for me now and you know everyone will have their own worldview but for me reality is our experience you know moment by moment and I think that has changed it's made me much more focused on the present moment which you know it's, it's helpful in terms of you know not not worrying about all the awful things that are going on in the world and I I think if 
Personally, I, I would recommend, you know, I mean, it's everyone's personal choice, but for me, I, I found that really useful and fulfilling kind of way of looking at how we live and the reality that we're in. And the other thing I would say is look up, look at the stars, but actually you don't, there's more that you can see even in London than you might realise, you know, you can follow the moon, Venus, Sirius, and all of those, you know, that gives you a connection with your celestial environment that I think lifts our awareness. And even if you're indoors and can't see any stars, just imagining us on the planet in the cosmos, again, kind of lifts your awareness in a way. Like if you're facing north, it's not just a compass direction. You're, you're facing the, the pole, you know, the axis around which our planet is spinning in space. And I think that on its own kind of just shift something inside that you feel a connection to something bigger that I think is, is a really great thing to have. Fabulous. I'm, I'm very sorry we're out of time because I could carry on with this for a long time. This is Joe's book, The Human Cosmos. You should all read it because it's brilliant. It's out now and that's, that's it. We've reached the end of our time. So I'm Helen Chersky. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us.